Hi everybody, it's Dr. Kara Fitzgerald and it's another edition of New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. Today we are talking about IgG, immune complex measurement for food sensitivities. Um, and my guest is actually the rather brilliant Dr. Brent Dorval, who has 25 years of experience in strategic management of a research manufacturing and regulatory affairs in the area of medical devices and diagnostics. Um, Dr. Dorval has uh, held a number of management positions and served as an advisor to the World Health Organization Committee on Vaccines and Diagnostics. Uh, but the focus of our podcast today is the fact that Brent is the inventor of the FIT test, which measures IgG and immune complexes against a variety of food antigens. And we're going to spend our conversation today really doing a good drill down into this test. What's it about? You know, why is it different from the other tools? We're using and so forth. Um, Brent also has a number of patents covering rapid assays, novel biomarkers, and a novel polio vaccine. He's got a pretty neat background. Um, he's, his PhD is in medical microbiology and immunology from the College of Medicine, the Ohio State University, and he performed uh, postdoc studies and was a visiting scholar in the Department of Chemistry at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So with welcome to New Frontiers, Dr. Dorval. Thank you very much, Dr. Fitzgerald. It's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. Well, let's just dive right in. Talk to me about... Okay, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I know, because I want to get to the meat of it and hear all about this test and, and what you're doing and how you developed it. But, you know, we're talking... We're, we're, so the IgG immune complex test measures for food sensitivity. So what is a food sensitivity? Uh, food sensitivity occurs when uh, a person ingests a food and the food ant antigens cross from the lumen of the gut into uh, the bloodstream and then cause the production of antibodies, IgG antibodies, which then precipitates the formation of immune complex, which then activates complement and then causes the attendant inflammation. And really the important uh, uh, word here is inflammation because the immune complexes, when they activate complement, they cause inflammation and then that generates the symptoms that are associated with food sensitivities. Right, and food sensitivities, um they're not, we're not talking about allergies. And I think most people, you know, most of the clinicians in the functional medicine space get it, but can you just, you know, differentiate for us again? Yes, absolutely. So food sensitivities are mediated by IgG and immune complexes. Mm -hmm. And these are delayed reactions, which means that when you form the antibodies, immune complexes, and then complements activated, the symptoms associated with the inflammation may not show up for three or four days. And they typically cause a wide variety of symptoms, anywhere from the digestive tract to the eyes, head, uh, weight gain, uh, pretty diffuse uh, type of uh, reactions. Now, right. by contrast, food allergy is caused when a person is exposed to a food or food antigen, and, the, and IgE is produced. And the big difference is that IgE is produced almost immediately, 
within minutes. So the reaction is very fast, within minutes or certainly within a half an hour. And the IgE then binds to mast cells, basophils in the body, and when cross-linked, then generates a huge kind of anaphylactic reaction. So the food allergies tend to be much quicker and much more severe mm-hmm. when they occur. Right, right. Although certainly IgG sensitivities can be really significantly um, debilitating. So talk about um, the KBMO test. So the, the IgG food immune complex assay that you've developed, you know, tell us, I mean, you, you just gave us an overview, but, you know, talk to us about the test, what you're measuring. And um, I want to understand a little bit more about your decision to include immune, the immune complex um, in the test, because that sets you apart, I think, from every other IgG assay out there, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? That's that. That's actually um, absolutely accurate, Dr. Fitzgerald. Our test measures IgG 1 through 4 mm-hmm. plus C3D, which is the inflammatory component that gets deposited on the immune complex. So why we developed it that way is it's really the inflammation that causes the symptoms. So it made good sense to measure the immune complex, which activates the complement and causes the inflammation. And the, the real crux of it is that when you look at how you set up the assay, the IgG generates a signal that we can detect, but the immune complex through C3D generates a septic, uh, separate signal. So, and those signals uh. are additive. So you get a nice, clean response so that when you visualize that in the report, it's clearly uh, a reactivity and you get a very low background. Now, by right. contrast, other IgG tests, they only measure IgG. They only get one signal by comparison so that the um, overall sensitivity of an IgG-only assay is, is at least 50% less than what is observed in the FIT test. So we get added sensitivity, which is great. We get a much higher signal. And as a result, when you visualize that as a clinician or as a patient, you can clearly um, depict the positives versus the negative reactions. Very, very clean. That's really interesting. I'm just, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. So I said that that, that's the, the basis of that. And there's a whole host of other types of assays out there, but basically we're the only uh, assay that measures those two signals simultaneously, and that's patented, so no other company can use that particular technology. Wow, and you've published on this, correct? Yes, we published one clinical paper about two years ago that clearly showed Uh, the utility of this test, not only from a technical perspective, but also from a clinical perspective when we looked at a a small study of 30 uh, uh, patients retrospectively. So Mm -hmm. that's uh, the previous, and uh, we have another study with 100 patients, which is a prospective study, and that's in the works right now. 
Okay, that's great. Well, if, um, you know, I'd love to have a, a, a link to that reference if possible, and I look forward to seeing the new, the new study that you're doing because it is unique, and I know that we see a lot of false positives, and there's, you know, there's false negatives. There's definitely um, holes in the IgG, which, you know, I, 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 I've used in my practice and I recommend, but I also, you know, I you coming forth and put laying, you know, adding this compliment makes an awful lot of sense. And I know that um, I've, I've enjoyed using this test in my practice and we'll talk about some of the cases that I've experienced later on. Um, so, so what exactly are, is the, um, is the KBMO test, the fit test measuring? Um, what are the main foods, but you know, what are the additional things that you're, that you're looking at? The, uh, the FIT test or the food sensitivity test that we offer at KBMO Diagnostics, again, measures IgG 1 through 4 mm -hmm. plus immune complex associated C3D, which is the inflammatory component. So we measure those two components simultaneously, and we measure it against 132 different foods and food additives. Now, these foods come from all the major dietary uh, uh, regions that you would uh, expect to be eating as mostly as an American uh, citizen, although it does uh, contain a lot of food additives that are worldwide. So uh, anything from fruits and dairy to food additives, which includes dyes and preservatives, uh, meats, fish, uh, vegetables, um, and those sorts of uh, those sorts of things, so that it's very, very comprehensive in its scope. So therefore, if you test a given patient using this test, you can very effectively determine which foods and which categories cause the problem for the patient. And then, you know, it makes it easy to design an elimination diet, which then uh, you can implement and the patient uh, generally benefits uh, quite a bit from. So, you know, the top um, food allergies in this country are like wheat, soy, you know, tree nuts, fish, etc. I mean, what are the top yes. ones that you're seeing on um, the FIT test? P pretty much that mirrors the big eight that we, mm -hmm. that we see for uh, food sensitivity. So you're absolutely right. I mean, you see, you see milk, eggs, wheat, nuts, uh, shellfish, um, fish in general, some meats, and even certainly some additives. But the main, the main ones are about 70% of the food sensitivities that we see come from four main groups, which is milk, eggs, um, wheat, and there is a lot of uh, nut sensitivity. So those are the big four, and those cover probably about 70% of what we see. And then the other ones, although they're just as important, are less prevalent. Right. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. And it makes sense because those are, those are foods with a lot of potentially antigenic proteins present in them. So it does make sense that you would see them, I think. Um, yeah. You know, you have the addition of all of the of the food additives, which is which is pretty neat. I mean, I actually was talking yeah. to 
to a um, a patient yesterday who's got who was recently diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, and she's coming back with um, polysorbate 80. Interestingly, as one of her, yeah. it's it's not her strongest reaction. Her strongest reaction was dairy, mm -hmm. not surprisingly, but um, polysorbate mm -hmm. 80 way up there. I mean, what do you what can you say? Like, what are you seeing about like when people are are flagging positive to these various additives? I mean, how significant are they? Um, uh, contributing to their uh, symptomatology. Uh, it, it's it's an integral part of of the whole uh, picture for a patient. And and you mentioned something like polysorbate eighty. It it's a small molecule. It's also called tween eighty. And what happens is is it's used as an emulsifier in in all kinds of uh, pharmaceuticals, in cosmetics, in foods like emulsified foods for hot dogs or sausages, as well as ice cream and, and other types of foods. So it is widespread and people get exposed to it. Most of the time, they don't even realize that they're consuming it. And even though it's a small molecule, a lot of times it can uh, still generate an IgG response and form an immune complex. And even though it's small, Still have as big a problem as some of the other proteins, which would be much larger. And you mentioned Crohn's and those sorts of diseases. Polysorbate 80 is a particular problem in that cohort of patients. And it has to do, again, with its binding properties and its unique properties to kind of, yeah. because it's a detergent type of molecule that can cross the intestinal uh, wall uh, very, very readily. Right, right. Well, it, her results were helpful. Um, so what's, what's the testing process? Well, what we do is the sample is, is first taken. So that could be a traditional blood draw. You simply draw into an 8 or 10 mil red top tube, and then you send that off to the lab. We spin it down and we test the antibodies that are in the immune complexes that are in the serum component. Now, we also have another uh, sample type, which is a blood spot. In that case, you do a simple finger stick and then you apply the blood to the circles on filter paper, let it dry, and then just mail it back to the company. Now, and then what we do there is we're also measuring the serum component because we dilute the serum out of the filter paper, and then we apply that to the test. So in either case, the serum contains antibodies and immune complexes. We add that to, or add those samples to a plate, which is coated with food antigens. We have 132 food antigens coated uh, on standard ELISA plates. We add uh, a sample to each one of those wells, and then we have a standard curve as well as a background control as, as just procedural controls on the test. Mm -hmm. And then we simply incubate that overnight. We let the antibodies and immune complexes bind to the foods. We come back the next day. We add the anti-human IgG and anti-human C3D to the plate. So those are the two markers we're looking for, mm -hmm. C3D and IgG. And then we go ahead and put that in a standard spectrophotometer after adding substrate, and we get a signal. So it's, uh, the process is from start to finish takes about two days. 
as we're doing it now. And then what we do is we use that data to produce a report that then is sent to the patient as well as to the healthcare provider. And that's used as a basis to then uh, design an elimination diet based on the reactivities. So it's a pretty straightforward process. And um, so blood spot versus a full draw, I mean, is there a difference? Mm -hmm. There is. I mean, the blood spot's really nice because it's convenient. People really love it this, these days. It's cheap. It's quick. You can do it at home. And um, in, in general, it just simplifies the process of having to go to a blood draw center or have a blood draw Mm -hmm. drawn in the office. A lot of people don't like needles, you know, venipuncture. So it, it, it takes that bit of fear out of it as well. Now, when you look at the comparison of blood spot, the accuracy of blood spot versus serum test, they're virtually identical. The blood spot is a slightly less sensitive. That's just because there's slightly less sample to test. But What's important, the important takeaway is that the high positives that we're looking for in this test are identical when you look at a blood spot versus serum. And by identical, they're 90 or 95% the same, which is a, a pretty good rate of, of accuracy. Yeah, and, that is. and given the simplicity, it, it seems to have a little niche in the marketplace right now. Yes. Well, you know, I have a lot of patients who don't live in the same state. You know, they might come in to see me annually. And if I want to do a follow-up test, a blood spot is so easy, you know, rather than needing to find a, a site for them to get to get drawn. Um, so the only thing that you're sacrificing is maybe some of those low-grade positives might not flag quite as high, but the major players I can expect to reliably, reliably show up. Yeah, that, that's, that's absolutely, absolutely correct. So you get always in a test, you get borderline positives. And so some of the borderlines will drop and they'll be a little bit more negative. Mm -hmm. But uh, suffice to say, you're absolutely correct. The high positives are, like I say, 95% the same. And we've done that comparison and, comparison and testing in-house um, prior to releasing uh, the assay uh, about a year and a half ago. So on the test, I'm actually looking at that um, IBD patient's results now from yesterday. I was just mentioning, she's got, um, you know, the front page of the test you have, uh, and actually if you have a sample report, we'll upload it to the transcription page so people can see what they're getting. Um, you've got plus two reactions, plus three reactions, and plus four reactions. Um, yeah. those, now these are the reactions that the blood spot and serum are both going to be able to pick up. These are the ones that you're considering to be, you know, the, the mother load, the ones that need to be eliminated, the ones most likely clinically relevant. Is that correct? That, that, that's correct. And, and, and the, the reason is on a test, this test is nine, shows 95% accuracy. And that means that if you have a positive, and that was the yellow, the tan, or the red, there's a 95% chance it's a true positive. And if you have a negative, which is the dark green, there's a 95% chance there's a true negative. Now, there's the 5% error zone, which is represented by the very light green bars. 
And if you test a sample several times, some will be light green, and that same sample might be dark green. So within that narrow zone there, you, you get a little bit of flip-flop. But those in general are not the clinically relevant one. It's generally the ones, overwhelmingly the ones that have the three, four reactions and also the two plus reactions. So folks, you can look at the sample report um, on the uh, transcription page for this podcast and you'll see on page two, the mild reactions, the green bar. I have in some cases actually decided to remove those, but it's a case by case basis. And it's, you know, I may, um, you know, maybe they've just finished a steroid taper or something like that, and I might think their reactions are a little bit blunted, and so I've chosen to say, look, let's just do a trial where we pull out those plus ones as well. Um, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I think that that's a good approach, and, and every doctor, every practitioner has a slightly different interpretation, which is very normal. And what you kind of do is go for the low-hanging fruit first. Mm-hmm. So the 4-3 and 2-plus are overwhelmingly the foods or food additives that will cause the problem. So those are focused on generally right up front. Now, if you see no relief in symptoms um, or the patient doesn't feel better after removing those foods, which, which can happen, Generally, then you can go back and say, okay, well, maybe, maybe there's a couple of these in the light green zone, the plus one zone that we could focus on uh, and see if those have any impact on your symptoms. But generally, that's after you've tested the, the two, the three, and the four plus reactions in the elimination phase. Right. Okay. That, that's fair enough. That makes sense to me. Now, well, just thinking about this... Um, it can be a lot. You know, I'm looking at my patient. This patient doesn't look particularly egregious. The things that she's going to need to remove, cow's milk, she's going to have to pull out egg, which she was actually pretty disappointed about. Um, yeast, she's having a yeast reaction, I suppose, not, not, not mm-hmm. hugely surprising. Um, but, you know, we've got a handful of things we're going to need to, we'll start on. Um, you know, how, how do you, you know, what are you guys doing or to support people clinicians in this whole process of initiating this very individualized elimination diet. I mean, I think in a way my patience is fairly straightforward, although she's really bummed out that she's going to have to let go of eggs. But, um, you know, it's sometimes these are, these can be very onerous. They can be highly restrictive. Mm-hmm. I mean, so how are you doing this? How long are you recommending they follow the protocol and, you know, what kind of support features do you have? Okay, yeah, very, very good uh, question. So we start off with the testing followed by the report. And I'd just like to emphasize, and, and we will upload one, and everybody will be able to see how easy and intuitive it is for the patient as well as the provider to just scan it. And within five seconds, you know exactly where the reactivities lie and then, so it's intuitive, quick, and you don't have to be uh, a scientist or a doctor to understand it. So then we take that in information and we use that to design an elimination diet. So we have uh, a PhD a nutritionist uh, on staff who is 
job is to design diets for people. So we take the information from the report and then we design the diet for people. And I know it couldn't be onerous. When you say you can't have milk products, boy, that covers a lot of ground. Or, or, or gluten or, you know, if you can't have a whole bunch of your yeah. staples. But yes. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. So the nutritionist is very, very good at designing a nutritionally balanced diet, yet at the same time eliminating the foods that may be responsible for the food sensitivities and then substituting those foods for foods that can be eaten. And, you know, it's never a perfect trade-off between one food or another, but let's put it this way, they're acceptable. And the way I look at it is a lot of the, the patients, they, they're really feeling quite bad. They have some pretty severe symptoms, as you stated uh, earlier, Dr. Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even though uh, milk or wheat may be a big part of their diet, these patients we find are very willing to comply with uh, a diet that's designed for them, you know, with the goal of making them feel better. And then we've taken it one step further. We've designed a simple phone app, and it's free. You download it onto your phone, and you download the report onto the phone app. And, you know, if you're out to eat and you say, oh, my God, can I eat that? You can scan your phone app. Or if you're shopping, you can, you can scan uh, what you're sensitive to while you're doing your shopping. So it's all about uh, patient awareness at this point. So you design the diet. You make sure they're aware of what they're sensitive to, and then you make it, you make that information easy and accessible, which just enhances their ability to comply. Right, right. Yeah, and I think it's really empowering. In fact, actually, just because I happened to have her test pulled up this patient yesterday, you know, we gave her access to her results, and she immediately did jump ahead and get the app and start the whole start the whole process and you know she had it a few days in advance and she came to me already you know already working it out i mean she was really excited i have a nutrition team here who who enacts you know the nutritious plans for for my patients and we'll work with her on it but mm -hmm. you know she just was kind of inspired and the, and you're right the results are extremely straightforward and she has access to your tools to the to the app and and you know she can she can she can do her thing um so so this is so this is basically turnkey for clinicians. If 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 I'm hearing you right, your your team. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yes, turn, turnkey is a is a is the operative word, and we even take it one step further. Um, we also offer technical help to doctors if there's any questions that arise. If you've got something that you thought were peculiar or odd or um, some reaction that you needed an explanation on, uh, or you wanted to send a patient to the company for some help. Um, and you can direct them directly to me. Um, that's a big part of my job is to make sure, um, you know, the customer interface from providers and patients, I get back to people quickly. Um, I give them informed information and that just enhances their ability, um, you know, to comply with the results and get the best result that's that's possible. So you are actually making yourself available to consult with not only the provider, but you'll answer patient questions as well? 
Yes, I will. But only the way that works is a, a, a doctor can call, a provider can call anytime. I'll pick up the phone and I'll answer the question. And that's pretty straightforward. Um, if a patient wants to talk to me, then what we, what we encourage, and in fact, today we, we demand it, is that they get the okay from their, their doctor or provider to call me and talk with me directly. And I'm happy to talk to the patient. And then what I do is I'll circle back to, with the doctor and then just kind of summarize what we talked about and what I thought the main features were just to kind of close the loop. But, and all that is free. So you can call yeah. Uh, you know, uh, practically any time, and I'll do my best to answer the question immediately. If not, I'll gather the information, and I'll get back to you as quickly as I can. It's incredibly useful. I mean, just the fact that you're generating the report and that you'll, you know, you'll work with um, the nutritionists will, will generate a meal plan. It's just, it's, you know, for the busy clinician, you just, you can't beat it. And it's really neat that you've created an app. So how long are you generally recommending people follow the elimination diet that you put, that you designed for them? Initially, what we recommend is that once we've got the elimination diet designed, that it's a six to eight week period that you abstain from those foods. Now, during that time, and I'm, I'm going to talk generalities, in most people, what occurs is that the antibodies and immune complexes are cleared quickly and mm, is 70, 80, 90% are gone during that particular phase, the six to eight periods. Now, some clinicians may bend more towards six weeks. Some say, oh no, I'd rather go more towards eight to 10 weeks. And again, some of this is individualized depending on the protocol. But the, the take-home message is the antibodies and immune complexes are cleared during that phase. And in general, you see, almost see sometimes the patients are starting to feel a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Then what you do is you say, okay, if you had four or five things that you removed from the diet, you'd say, okay, um, now we're going to reintroduce those foods in, in, in that after the elimination phase. So you'd say, okay, on Monday... I'll have a normal uh, size glass of milk, six or eight ounces, because you were sensitive to it. And then keep a diary and follow how do you feel on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, to see if any symptoms either reappear or worsen. Mm -hmm. And if they do, then you've identified a food that triggers a symptom in that particular patient. And then if they say, oh, no, I drank milk. And I felt fine the whole week and nothing seemed to happen. You say, okay, that doesn't seem to trigger a symptom. Then you can move on to the next food. So the, but what's really important is you remove the four or five all at once, but you only add back one food at a time and keep track of it so that if something reappears, you'll know and you can associate it with that food. Now, that's the hard part of food sensitivities is you eat so many things, it's like which one or ones caused the problems for me. So we try to encourage just one food reintroduced at a time. Right. No, that makes absolute sense. And then if they are reactive, do you suggest they stop eating it for a longer period of time, forever? I mean, what is the protocol that you're suggesting? 
Yes. So then, so then, what uh, what we've shown, and and uh, I'll upload the paper that we published on the uh, on the clinical study, is that um, if a patient is sensitive after the elimination phase, so let's I'm using milk as the example. So they had it on Monday, and then by Tuesday, their bowel problems are back, or they're getting hives, or some other symptom is either worsening or reappears. Just saying, okay. That's a trigger food. Now you've got to remove that from the diet for um, as, ma- as much as 10 months, 11 months. Mm-hmm. And the reason you do that is you not only want the antibodies and immune complexes to now go down very um, low levels, I mean virtually 99%, you want to stop the activation of the cells in the lymph glands from being activated, the B cells, and those get kind of quiescent after 10 or 11 months. So then after 10 or 11 months, you say, okay, um, you were sensitive to milk, that triggered a negative symptom, Uh, let's do the same thing again. So you try it on Monday, and you just have a normal amount, and you say, huh, geez, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I felt fine. You say, well, geez, okay, let's try it one more time. So the next week, follow on with another glass of milk. I feel fine. So by all accounts, the patient is no longer sensitive to that food. It's because the antibodies, the titer, the amount in the blood and the immune complexes particularly, are now at very low levels. So what we recommend there is just don't eat the food too frequently. So rotate your diet. And in general, patients can then eat that food again, but instead of, you know, pe- people tend to eat something they like three, the four, time. five times a week or more. Yeah, all the yeah. time. So you say, well, instead of that, you know, eat it once or twice a week, and generally people can get away with that. So, it, and then, but there are some foods and some people where after 10 or 11 months, you'll reintroduce it. You'll reintroduce it on Monday. It doesn't matter. By Tuesday, they're feeling unwell again. So you have to then exclude that from the diet on a more permanent basis and then find a permanent substitution. Right, right. And I find that usually whatever that individual is presenting with, they're absolutely relieved to have it gone, you know, so they don't mind having, you know, one or two foods out of the diet long term, you know. Um, I had one patient. Yeah, that's who, true. I had one patient who developed really severe um, sinusitis with dairy. Severe, actually. I, I worked mm-hmm. at a tertiary care pain center, and he was referred there for, you know, pain management. They were um, just so poorly controlled, and it was dairy. I mean, it was really that simple. It was dairy. Um, and now, so he's clearly committed to, you know, not even mm-hmm. he, he avoids the same room when there's dairy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not quite that, but you know, it was just very, very, very much of an issue for him. Um, well, so just along, actually, let me just ask one more question because it, you know, again, I'm just looking at this sure. in front of me, and it's kind of interesting. And yeah. then I want to just talk about. I know you've heard a lot of. I mean, you've been talking to people doing this for a long time, so I want to hear some of your some of your cases too. But um, so my patient, one of the interesting things about her results is that she's um, she's really she's got a strong positive to cow's milk, so that's her that's mm-hmm. her severe reaction. But casein, the dairy protein, is actually only a mild 
and she's not reactive. She had no reaction to goat's milk. So kind of an interesting picture. And, you know, can you just, can you walk us through? Yes. Um, so the reason we will we'll use milk is the example. We test whole milk and we test casein separately. Mm -hmm. And then we test goat's milk, obviously, which is a different species. One's bovine, one's uh, uh, goat, caprine. And so the importance there is that there are a lot of pro uh, proteins in milk, whole milk, besides casein. Casein is about 70% of the total protein in milk, you know, a little bit more, a little bit less, depending on, you know, the species of cow and what they're consuming. So a lot of times what we'll find is that be no reactivity uh, at all to um, uh, uh, whole milk, let's say, because it's a, a mixture of, of proteins and casein, but casein is very high. And by no reactivity of milk, a very low reactivity, what you see. So the profile shows like casein might be three or four plus and whole milk might be two plus. So the importance there is that kind of flags that and says that, hmm, milk is positive, but the major component here of that dairy is casein and overwhelmingly casein naturally since it's the highest concentration generally causes the biggest problem uh, for people that are dairy sensitive. Right. Now, the reason we test goat milk, now goat milk, different species, but the proteins, the casein, and there's a whole host of other proteins in milk are what we call homologous. That means yeah. that the protein structure is similar, but not the same. So sometimes people can't eat cow's milk or consume cow's milk, but they can consume goat's milk. And the, the, the minor differences are, are in the proteins that are found in cow's milk enable that to be, um, say, not immunogenic to that person, so therefore they don't show any symptoms. And the same thing follows a lot of times for other types of species of milk, even that we don't taste. Uh, uh, test in, a, in, in our particular test. So the take-home message is that casein is many times the problem for people and that sometimes you can substitute goat milk for cow's milk and you can get away with consuming that without triggering uh, any negative symptoms. Right, which is looks to be, it is the case, it looks to be the case with my patient, but I just actually negotiated her doing a dairy-free um, trial mm -hmm. altogether. But I think if a patient was right. really, really wanting dairy, they, yeah, they, could, they should safely be able to go, go with goats according to this profile because she's not reactive. All right, well, talk to me yeah. about some of your cases. I mean, you've been doing the test for a while now. Um, you've been talking to clinicians all over, you know, all over the country. Um, what kind of successes are you seeing? Well, we, we, we've got, I've, I pulled one that is kind of the, the, the uh, typical case study that we see, you know, overwhelmingly. And uh, it, this happens to be a female patient uh, of about 35 years old. Um, uh, she was showing weight gain over time. Blood pressure was elevated, 174 over 107. So not mm -hmm. crazy high, but certainly elevated. But the, the, the key for her was, she had extraordinarily low energy. She, she used to be a, a professional woman, high-powered, 
I've always had a lot of energy. I got up out, uh, out of bed in the morning uh, like a rocket and was ready to, to, to do 10, 12 hours at work and then come home and, and finish my day. And, and over time, she lost her energy level. So what we did was we said, okay, um, this may be a case. Let's, let's test this person. So we tested uh, her, and what we found that we sh- she was particularly sensitive, and it's funny that you mentioned it, to uh, both cow's milk and casein. Uh, she showed some sensitivities uh, to uh, seafood, um, which she consumed on a regular basis. And, and by that, I mean mostly scallops and some codfish. Mm-hmm. And she had some various other sensitivities to fruits and stuff like that. She, she liked fruits. She, it was easy for her as somebody on the go to, to just grab fruits, put them in your, your briefcase, and consume them. So we said, okay, we've identified these foods. You had four plus, three plus, two plus of these foods. Let's get them out of the diet. We retested her after the elimination phase, and what we found was the, uh, the so six to eight weeks, and then what we found was her antibody titus had gone down quite a bit. Now, not to zero, but quite a bit. So the fours probably, you know, you're looking at threes and twos, and the threes went to twos. So they diminished a little bit, which happens uh, over time. And when we reintroduced these foods, she had certain reactivities to these. Anything from, again, the uh, not so much the weight gain, but what we noticed was her, she said she just felt tired, especially mm. with milk. Mm. And the fruits were giving her skin reactivity. Just, I mean, very pronounced, blotchy skin reactivity, mm. and particularly in her face. So we said, okay, you're sensitive to these foods. Let's, let's remove these from the diet for, it was, the average was 10 and a half months. So we got these foods out for about 10 and a half months, and then we retested her then. Her antibody titers had dropped to practically zero. So the four pluses went down to two plus, one plus. The three pluses went down to, you know, sometimes one plus and even negative. So the take-home message is her antibody titers went down significantly. And during that time, she reported feeling much, much better. And then when we looked at just some of the typical um, parameters, such as weight. At, at that point, after 11 months, and it wasn't just calorie related, she had lost 33 pounds. So that's a lot of times weight yeah. is associated with inflammation. Her blood pressure now was down to 138 over 85. And so her blood pressure, again, is inching in the right direction. And the most notable thing that, that, that she could recount was that she felt better. And by feeling yeah. better, she meant she felt more like herself and her energy levels had resumed. And so we, we brought her through the process of uh, testing, uh, retesting in the rotation phase. And some of the foods that she was abstaining from, she could eat, and some of the foods she could not. And then from there on out, she just basically followed a diet that was kind of prescribed for her, if you will. And she's been happy, you know, as of this day. So that is typically what we see is that a patient comes in, they feel unwell for a variety uh, of reasons, and we 
test them and find out what your reactivities are. We then also looked at what is your symptom. So we provide a symptom checklist and the patient can then say, okay, you know, migraines are unbearable. I, 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 I get them every day and they're debilitating. So you try to um, score how they feel. And then upon retest, you find the antibodies are reduced. And then when you look at the symptom checklist, at the very least, the symptoms have been reduced and in some cases eliminated. Now, we look at this test. It's not, this isn't a test where someone is cured, but the goal here is to reduce inflammation. And when you do that, in general and overwhelmingly, the patient feels much better. And a lot of times, I think, as you know, Dr. Fitzgerald, these patients come in and they have other physiological things going on. They may even, we get some people that might have diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis or some other organic illness. So you can't cure somebody, but the goal is, can you lessen their symptoms or the severity of their symptoms and make them feel better as a result? And the, the answer overwhelmingly is, is yes. The patients feel much, much better once you've identified the trigger foods. Yep. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one, a couple of interesting cases for me were some, you know, some uh, two two individuals with challenging, particularly challenging conditions. Another IBD patient and an and an allergy patient who um, we had taken up, you know, a, a good distance in wellness, but still had some refractory symptoms and. Um, the KBMO really helped us identify some foods that I would not have suspected to be problems. In fact, in the IB, IBD patient, chicken was a pretty profound irritant. And mm -hmm. um, she had a really, she had a really good response to pulling it out. And I was surprised. I mean, I do like, you know, just as you said earlier, you expect to see those to the top eight common allergens, not only as IG, you know, the top eight IgEs, you, you know, those are the proteins that we see for IgGs as well. And that's, you know, that's my experience. Um, but she was really on a hypoallergenic diet already. But she was still symptomatic. Mm -hmm. So she was off of, you know, she was mm -hmm. off of dairy, she's off of gluten, etc. So she's on a pretty rigorous diet, still symptomatic, identified chicken as a, as a major player for her. And it, it turned her, mm -hmm. it, it was the, you know, it was the, it was the missing link. Um, so, you know, I, I found it to be quite helpful. And similar with the skin patient, um, still mm -hmm. reactive with, um, with eczema despite lots of work. I mean, I'm, you know, good, careful eliminations yeah. and, you know, same thing. Um, so, you know, mm -hmm. my experience, especially with those tougher cases, I mean, that's just, that's, that's pretty yeah. cool. Because I would not, you know, I generally think of chicken as, as, as pretty hypoallergenic, you know. It's usually not right. an issue, but for whatever reason, she was reacting to it. Um, so, right. and, and, I, and I agree 100% with you because sometimes the result of eliminating a food can be almost m miraculous. And I don't want to sound like some kook, but I mean, it can really be dramatic in, in, in a person. Other times you get a more graded response where like for some people that we've had with migraines, They'll say, I get a migraine almost every day. It lasts for hours. I, can't, I take drugs for it. It doesn't help. Um, and and I'm, at, I'm at my wit's end at this point. And then you put them on the diet. You identify a food or two or more that they're sensitive to. And 
they'll come back months later and they'll say, you know, I still get migraines, but now I only get one every two or three weeks. And it's far less severe and debilitating than what I used to get. And, and they're, they're happy as a clam. Oh yeah. It's to, to, to them, that's huge. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Total price of gold. So, um, we are, we're, we're, we're at the end, but I just want to assure our listeners today that, um, well, you can go to the website, which is, which is easy. You know, it's kbmodiagnostics.com. Uh, but again, if you swing yeah. by the, the transcription page attached to this podcast, we'll have the sample report. We'll have some research. Um, we'll just be able to connect you with all things about the KBMO fit test. Um, Dr. Duval, thank you so much for joining me today on New Frontiers. Well, a pleasure, uh, Dr. Fitzgerald, and, uh, and I thank the, uh, the uh, web audience uh, for attending today.